This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're in a series that we've called Better that's kind of anchored in this one thought. And so I want to just begin by looking at that today. That the message of Jesus doesn't necessarily guarantee you a better life. But it does guarantee that you'll get better at life. Now that's a, a, a statement that for many of us that heard the message of Jesus heralded as children or maybe in other locations would scream contradiction because the promise was that if we gave our life to Jesus that our life would get better. But if you rewind to the first century, I, I don't think that that statement is any more clear than it was in the first century when the message of Jesus spread like wildfire among the known world in the Mediterranean rim and in the western uh, portions of what we knew as civilized world at that time. See, it was common for someone, if they made a decision to follow Jesus, to face immediate persecution. The persecution was so severe that they would be ostracized from their families, often facing death. Death as a public spectacle. That's not the kind of message that we often hear in America. But at the same time, the message of Jesus was spreading like wildfire. And the question remains, why? In the face of such persecution, in the face of such resistance, why did it spread? If it wasn't giving people a better life as far as their circumstances, why did it spread? And it spread because of that second truth, because it changed radically the way that people lived. And people began to serve and give and love selflessly in ways that they never had. And people began to watch the message of Jesus transform people. And through that, through what they saw, people began to give their lives to Jesus, even though the circumstances of their life were not going to get better. See, for the past few weeks, we've dealt with the idea of better and we began by realizing that in life our job in following Jesus is to get better is not to be perfect because none of y'all ever going to be perfect hate to break the news to you okay some of y'all think you are right now I'm sorry God never designed your life to be the measurement that another life would be measured up against but he did send his son Jesus to be perfect so that we would be measured up against him. And it is the most loving thing that he could have done. Because in John chapter 1, the Bible describes the coming of Jesus. And in two times, the writer John says that he came filled with grace and truth. That is what love is. Love is grace and truth. And far too often, we get love that is just grace, no truth. And that's not love at all. That's enabling. And God doesn't enable us. As a matter of fact, he measures us against the standard of truth, which is Jesus. 
So I'd like to begin today's message, which I've entitled A Better Me. Today we're going to look inward and ask the question, what does it take for me to be better? I want to just give you a few phrases and see if you as a crowd, if you can fill in the blank at the end of these things. These are common cultural things, things that we would say around the workplace or things that you grew up hearing. Number one, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Number two, if you grew up watching TV in the 80s, you know this one. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. We earn it. Got to be a little bit older to know this third one. There's no such thing as a free, free ride. Or if you go back a little bit, a free lunch. If you're a teacher, you know today there is such thing as free lunch. But total different conversation right there, right? All right, here's one that we, we say in the church a lot, especially here in the South. God helps those who help themselves. How many of y'all are thankful that God helped you when you aren't helping yourself? How many of y'all realize how wrong that is? <laughs> All right? But we drop those things. Here's the last one, last one. This kind of anchors into what we're going to talk about today. There's no gain without pain. No pain, no gain. The first thing you notice today is that you are going to experience pain in life. You are going to experience pain in life. It's a guarantee. As a matter of fact, Jesus says so in John 16, where he says, Here on earth you have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You are going to have pain. Now, there's a different kind of pain that we go through in different seasons. How many of y'all know today you got up, maybe your knees hurt a little bit, your back hurt? A little bit because you have not taken good care of yourself. How many of y'all feeling that this morning? Didn't take good care of yourself growing up and there are aches and pains that you're living with right now. There's pain that we endure in life because we caused it. There's pain that we go through because it happens to us. Maybe the pain that is associated when a friend betrays your trust. When a spouse cheats on you, a pain that may be associated that you did nothing wrong. Maybe it was a car accident. You were just driving along, minding your own business, and somebody else was texting and driving, and they hit you. And all of a sudden, what was healthy and normal became painful. Maybe you worked for a company that decided to downsize, and your position was one of the first to be cut. Or maybe you were... Like a friend of mine, you came home one day and you had a kitten in your house because your little girl showed up with a cat. And the wife couldn't say no. So by the time dad got home in the evening, there was already a kitten in the family. He couldn't kick the kitten out. It was already a part of the family. And there is a pain associated with having a cat that is a part of your family, right? You will all experience pain. And sometimes the pain is a result of something that you did not do. There are some of you that are in here today, and I just want you to just kind of just pause and listen to me for a moment, that you've experienced significant pain at the hands of other people. You were abused. You were mistreated. I want you to understand that you did not deserve that. All right? That even though the Bible tells us that we will experience pain, that that sort of pain is not pain that you deserve or earned or needed, right? 
As a matter of fact, we're, we're going to look at a different kind of pain because here's the truth. Number two, sometimes you have to choose between two different types of pain. Sometimes a decision will actually be between two different types of pain. If you're a kid in here, you understand that sometimes you have to choose between the pain of obeying your parents right now or the pain of the consequences that will come later if you disobey, right? Sometimes if you're a student, you know that you have to endure the pain of studying for a class or you will endure the pain of taking that class again later. You may have to endure the pain of saying no to temptations that you face right now. Or you'll have to endure the pain of an addiction later. Or maybe it's that you learn to live with the pain of living within your means so that you don't have to live with the pain of debt. You see that sometimes we have to choose between different types of pain. And so today, I want to look at this statement, the third thing down there in your notes, that we must choose the pain of discipline over the pain of shame. We must learn to choose the pain of discipline over the pain of shame. The book of Hebrews talks specifically about discipline and it says that no discipline is pleasant in its moment but it yields a harvest that there is a product that is good and helpful that comes as a result of the discipline that was painful so as we talk about the pain between discipline and shame today let me just be clear up front that we're talking about the decisions that you make that bring pain into your life If you're the person in here today that is a a, a victim of abuse in the past, we are not talking about the, the pain or the shame that you may feel that is associated with something that you had no provocation or cause in. But how many of y'all know that there are plenty of things that you know that you are supposed to do that you are not doing? It's not like we need God to show up and give us any more things to do. We already know. All right. When you get sick, you probably already know what's wrong. You got WebMD app on your phone. You pull it up. You type in the list of symptoms and you pull up your disease. You go to the doctor already self-diagnosed. I got a sinus infection. I need some antibiotics. And could you prescribe, please, a Z-Pack? Because I would not like to take antibiotics for the next 21 days. I just want to do it for four days, please. Right? You already know what's wrong with you. Something breaks in your house. You go, you go to YouTube and you pull up a how-to video and you fix it yourself. See, the problem is we don't need more knowledge on what to do. The problem is, is that we know what to do and we're not doing it. And because we are not disciplined in our doings, we are living and coping with shame. We see this tension kind of unfold in Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul says, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. How many of y'all can identify with that statement? Raise your hand. Seriously, I'm, this is a, if you're not raising your hand, you're just lying. Okay? All right? You're just a liar here right in the middle of church. Shame on you. Okay? Because that's all of us. That's humanity. The tension that exists between what we know we should do and what we actually do. 
He continues on. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And I understand, this is the Apostle Paul. He started the most influential churches in the whole entire world. He wrote by volume half of the New Testament. All right. He is extremely influential. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I mean, if you're honest, that's a tension that we often feel, that we often go through. How many of y'all know you ain't supposed to eat that, you know, that Pop-Tart at like 11 o'clock at night, right? You know, you know, but you're hungry and you could eat, you could eat like an apple, but you got to cut the apple up. You just throw that Pop-Tart in the toaster and it takes like three seconds and then it's so good. You feel full and you can go sleep good. You know you're not supposed to do that. Right? There's all this stuff that we know we're not supposed to do. We know we're not supposed to look. We know we're not supposed to touch. We know we're not supposed to consume. We know we're not supposed to take that or that. But we do it anyway. And then we live with this. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, in that passage, he presents to us the tension that lies between what we should do and what we do. And that tension creates shame. Create shame. And so I'm going to lean heavily into the research of Brene Brown, who is a professor at the University of Houston, a believer in Jesus, but she specifically researches shame. And I'm going to really give you some insight into shame today. The first thing that I want you to know about shame is that shame grows in the silence. Shame grows in silence. And so often... We're afraid to tell somebody something and, and we're, we're afraid to let it out of the bag and, 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 and it just keeps growing and, and growing and growing. I love this quote from her. If we want to live in love with our whole hearts and we want to engage with the world from a place of worthiness, we have to talk about things that get in the way of worthiness, things like shame. She would go on to basically create this paradigm that says that the exact opposite of shame is worthiness. Shame says I'm not worthy of love. Worthy sa- or Worthiness says I am worthy of love. And it's interesting to me that many of us in here, we've prayed that prayer, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. But you still carry around shame inside of you. There are still things that are hurtful that have not been healed inside of you because you have never talked about it. You have never sat down with somebody that is safe, that you love, that you can confess to, and you've never talked about it, which is why I think James 5.16 says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I believe there are a lot of Christians that are forgiven, that are not healed because they have not been willing to confess their sins to another person. Because shame grows in the silence. This is why sometimes the most loving thing we can do is have a hard conversation or ask a tough question. It's the most loving thing we can do. Because it forces someone to deal with something that they might be hiding 
they might not want to talk about. And the most loving thing we can do is try to get that out and on the, on the table so that it can be dealt with because shame grows in the silence. The second thing I want you to see about shame is that shame cripples closeness. Shame cripples closeness. In our thousands and thousands of interviews, at this point in, in her research, tens of thousands She said, I I know three things about shame. I know, number one, we all have it. Every person in this room has, to some degree, some level of shame, something that you felt like you should have done, something that's lurked in the past. We all have it. Number two, we're all afraid to talk about it. Every single person is afraid to talk about it. And number three, the less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. The more control it has. And see what happens with shame is shame will shut down your capacity to be intimate and to be close to people. It'll become that secret that you have to work so hard to protect that you push people away. And they'll only be able to get so close to you because shame exists. Because shame cripples closeness. You see, basically, shame is the fear that once you're found out, you won't be lovable. That you'll be rejected. That you'll be despised. For Dr. Brown, her working definition of shame is shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, I don't know if you know much about the temple and temple worship in the Old Testament. Many of us are not familiar with that. As you read through the the Psalms, it it gives you kind of narratives that point to the way that the temple itself was constructed, which is why at times it says, you know, I enter his courts with thanksgiving. I come through the gates with praise. There were different types of courts that surrounded and different gates that had names. And as they begin to develop, they all develop different meanings and purposes. But kind of essentially that statement is like saying, I just came into the doors of the church like, hey, everybody, I'm ready. I'm excited to be at church today, right? That's what he's saying. But there's a, there a portion, as you begin to work your way inward, it, it became more sacred, more, more holy, more dedicated to the Lord. And there was a, a place in the, in the middle of the temple that they called the Holy of Holies, where occasionally the, the Spirit of God would descend upon to receive an offering in atonement for the sins of Israel. This is why Jesus came to be the one last perfect offering that there would never have to be this ritual sacrificial offering that would have to continue. And so the the priest would prepare by one, by living the right life, right? They would live ceremoniously, like adhering to all the laws of the Old Testament. They would go through a ritual cleansing and then they would tie bells to their tassels and send them in with a rope around their ankle because oftentimes 
when they went in to perform the, the task of the sacrifice, when the presence of God came, it was so strong that the sin in their lives would kill them. And they would hear the bells stop moving and they would pull them out dead. See, before Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but we could only go so far. Because of the shame that was associated with our sin. We could only be so intimate with God. So I love this passage out of Hebrews 10 where the writer of Hebrews says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can now boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Let us go right to the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying we used to, could only go so far, but now we can go all the way. Shame has been destroyed. We can now be fully intimate with God. But that's what shame does when we let it live in our lives. Shame cripples closeness. And the last thing is that shame affects our self-worth. Shame affects our self-worth. Shame will twist what has happened in your past and allow it, instead of it being a part of your story, it will become your identity. Now, we have to own our stories. That's a part of growing and maturing. We have to get to the point where we can admit guilt. Guilt is just, just simply being able to say, I did something bad. I am the person that cheated. I am the person that lied. I am the person that was unfair. I am the person. But see, shame does something different. Shame creates an identity out of that. Because guilt says I did something bad, but shame says I am bad. See, guilt says, I was unkind to my kids this morning. But shame says, I'm a bad parent. Guilt says, I didn't meet the expectations of my boss. I failed. I didn't get it right. Shame says, I'm a bad employee. Which is why I love the way that God addresses our condition after we've given our lives to Jesus and been reconciled to him. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come and the old has gone. In Christ, we find the answer. And so I'd like to spend the remainder of our time together today talking about the answer to the problem of shame that we live with. And it is found in that opening statement where that we have to choose the pain of discipline above the pain of shame. And some of us maybe for the first time today recognize that there is pain that is associated with the shame that we have been living with. And maybe for the first time today, God's going to invite you into a new way of living that will address that. But maybe you need to understand what discipline is. So let me just give you a simple definition of discipline. Discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. 
It's choosing between what you want now and what you want most. What is it that you want most? You want to be healthy financially? Do you want good relationships? Do you want to have a healthy relationship with your spouse and with your kids? Do you, do you want to be a good boss, a good business owner? What do you want most? When you think about the things that you want most, it's so easy to recognize that we make decisions in the moment that undermine that. Because we're constantly choosing what we want now over what we want most. And discipline is choosing what we want most over what we want now. We kind of see this picture in 1 Corinthians 9 where the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth and says, Do you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win the prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. It's important to note that like when he's writing to the church in Corinth, that there were every year a series of games held in Corinth that were similar to what we would picture as the Olympic Games. And the athletes trained in Corinth. They trained in, and so the citizens of Corinth would have been familiar with the fact that there were races that were being ran, and there was great consequence being paid into the discipline of preparing. They knew that oftentimes it was at least 10 months in preparation for an athlete to enter into the games. And so he says, if they do that, for a race that only one person gets the prize. Why in the world wouldn't we discipline ourselves in a race where we can all win the prize and it's an eternal prize, a prize that will not fade away? See, discipline is pivotal. It's pivotal. Number two in your notes today is so important. Discipline is what releases your God-given potential. Discipline releases your God-given potential. In every person that's in this room, God has locked inside of you something that he wants to release. Potential to make a difference in life. Potential to make an eternal impact in others. But discipline is the thing that lies between you and the release of God's intentions. And we have to choose to be disciplined. A friend of mine said this a few weeks ago. I love it. God's grace covers our mistakes, but not our laziness. If you pay attention in Scripture, you want to know who God gets angry at more? The person who's made a mistake or the person who never got up and engaged the activity at all? It's the person who refused. You, do you remember the, the time that a guy had a, Jesus tells a story of a guy who had a massive harvest, and instead of giving the harvest away, he said simply, I'm just going to build a bigger barn and keep it to myself. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Tonight you will die. That seems like pretty harsh judgment for refusing to engage in kingdom activity. You know, Jesus said, to the people who were trying to call him Lord. And he said, no, no, when, 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 I, was, when I was hungry, did you, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you provide me clothes? 
the harshest judgment in the teaching of Jesus is to the people who had the opportunity who didn't take the opportunity. Which is why I think Proverbs 18.9 is so important. A lazy person is as bad as someone who destroys things. I mean, in the kingdom of God, the person who refuses to engage in building actively the kingdom of God is just as bad as the person who's destroying it. See, discipline is what stands between you and the release of your God-given potential because God created you to be a force on this earth for good. He made you to be that way. And the last thing I want you to see about discipline is that our discipline must remain focused on Jesus. Here's the problem. So many times we go into seasons where we are disciplining ourselves. And and what happens, and it's so natural to do it this way, is that the thing that we are disciplining ourselves actually becomes the object that we focus on. And so the the young couple that says, hey, you know what, we're going to abstain from sex to say pure before we get married, what happens is they start to focus on sex. What ends up happening? They end up having sex. The young addict who is beginning to take step into addiction recognizes that there's a, there's a problem, that, that I'm starting to use this stuff way too much. I'm becoming dependent on it. And all of a sudden they say, I don't, I'm going to say no to it. I'm going to say no to it. And all that, they just start saying no. But the focus remains the drug. See, the problem is, is that if our eyes stay focused on the problem, it will always remain a problem. Which is why Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a radically different perspective of how to be disciplined. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to life of faith, to this life, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. In other words, there's sin. There's things that have been keeping us back. There are things that have been causing us shame. We need to let go of those things especially the sin that trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God set before us. Now we do this. We do this. That always lets us know he's about to give us a practical point. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated at a place of honor beside God's throne. So how do we discipline ourselves in life? Is we choose to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. He must remain the center of our discipline. He must remain the focus of our discipline. Did you notice that at the end of Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the tension between what he does and what he does not do. He says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus must remain the center of our discipline. So let me ask you this question today. What do you want most? What is it that you want most in life? What do you want most? Think about it right now. Answer that question for yourself. What do you want most? What do you want most? Do you want better relationships? Do you want better finances? What do you want today? Because here's the truth. What 
this is a, just an important question because there's an action step to what you need and want the most, all right? So what do you need to do and need to choose right now to achieve what you want the most? If you're here today and you say, I want, I want to get closer to God, well, you need to start reading your Bible. You commit to being a part of a church and you need to start serving, using the gifts that God's given you. If you say today, what, what is most important is that I've neglected my health and, and, and I need to lose about 20 pounds, well, then you need to join a gym and hire a trainer and get some advice on your diet. If you're here today and, and we, you just say, hey, we need help. Our marriage needs help. Well, you need to commit to spend time together and have regular date nights. And if you have problems that you can't work out yourself, you need to commit to sit down with a counselor that is licensed and trained and can help you. And if you're the person in here that's struggling with addiction, the next step could be that you just simply say, hey, you know what? I have a problem. Then you go find a, a support group and, and you enter into a treatment program and you, you connect with people who are going to keep you accountable. Maybe today you're the person that's living in debt. and The decision that you need to make is that you need to say, I'm going to live in my means and I'm going to cut up the credit cards and I'm going to take financial peace and I'm going to prepare for a life that's going to be debt free. Because I want you to see this. Look at as the Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 9, he said this. So I run with purpose in every step. Not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Purpose in every step. So today, the next step that you take is a step towards your purpose. If you choose to live a life that is focused on what you want most instead of what you want right now, the next step that you take will be a step towards your purpose. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.